This is Bill Conway from The Hard Times, and you are listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with another brand new episode. And in the guest host chair tonight, I've got Ryan Bagley of There Were Wires. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on, Keith. What a, what a privilege it is to be here with you. You know, Ryan, it's great to have you here as a first-time guest and guest co-host. I have spoken to several of your bandmates but now I've got you here as well. So we're going to get even more of a scoop on the band and everything else. What a treat for you to finally get me. I've been trying. <laughs> I've been trying for months and months, oh, but you, you kept dodging me. If you knew how easy it was to get me, Keith. <laughs> I know now. I know now. Well, it's great to have you here, Ryan. And uh, we've got a great show planned for you, everybody. We're going to be talking to Ryan. There Were Wires is active again. They're playing gigs. They've got a re-release of their first LP coming out, so we're going to talk about that. And we have spoken to Spencer Chamberlain of Under Oath, and what a great conversation that is. You know, we cover everything. Spencer joining the band, his journey through addiction, that's a really compelling story. Their latest self-produced record, Voyeurist, we cover it all. He's a great guy, it's a great conversation. I mean, you heard it, Ryan, right? I did. It was a great conversation. Yeah, it was really interesting. I, there were a lot of things I didn't, I didn't know about him. Yeah, so hang in there. That is coming up shortly. But first, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Reviews. Have you left a review for the show yet? You know, you know, you can leave a five-star review in Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And did you know that you can write a review and Apple Podcasts. If you leave a nice review, I'll read it on the air, right here in this very section of the show. And shirts. We have a wonderful selection of shirts available at Deathwish Inc. It's getting warmer out. Do you have a new scene t-shirt? No? Well, now's the time to get one. What about you, Ryan? I'm sure you have the whole collection by now. I've got all of it. That's all I wear. Every single one. That's all I wear, too. I got to let the people know, because if I don't, who will? Yeah, you don't want to be out there in Cracker Jack clothes, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Also, don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. Ryan, I've got some very exciting news. Oh my God, what is it? Uh, you're not going to believe this. Iodine is re-releasing Drowning Man's Busy Signal at the Suicide Hotline on vinyl. They are reissuing the record as part of a celebration of its 25th anniversary. You know, this record, I this is a record I still listen to to this day it really holds up it's not they were part of that whole technical metalcore thing and along with dillinger and converge and a lot of those other bands things that were happening in the late 90s early 2000s but drowning man does stand a bit apart from that it's a little different it's a little more melodic yeah i haven't i haven't actually haven't listened to it in a while but but yeah it was always um that was like a they had sort of a, a more noisy like kind of a dead guy kind of thing going on you know it wasn't all just like tech yeah they were awesome yeah so that's coming out the pre-order is up 
make sure you order it soon because once it's gone, that's it. And then it'll be another 25 years before you can get it. And who knows if we'll be alive by then. We probably won't. More exciting news, Ryan. Have you heard about this? Have you read about this? There were wires. The self-titled debut LP is being repressed on vinyl. I had I had I have inside information on that, so I did know about that. All right, tell us about it, Ryan. Uh, it's being repressed on vinyl. Yes, can you believe it? <laughs> Straight from Ryan himself, the drummer of the band. It's coming out. Yeah, it's 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 been uh, it's been really fun um, revisiting all this old stuff and um, you know taking a little trip down nostalgia lane with everybody. And uh, Casey's been working really hard to get this together for us and everyone in the band, especially Jeb. Uh, tracking down all these old recordings and everything. Um, had Kurt uh, from God City uh, remix and remaster the whole thing. It sounds great. Uh, he did such an awesome job. Um, so yeah, it's really it's really cool to have this have this finally come out. Um, you know the way we always wanted it to be. That's awesome. Yeah, you can hear some of it now. The first single, "Lukewarm Happy," is up now on every streaming service. Check it out and pre-order the record. Additionally, the second pressing of Quicksand's Slip is now up for sale. That's going fast. Get yours before it's gone. Sign up for the Iodine email list. You'll get news of all of this stuff first. The repressings, the new stuff coming out. For more information, head to iodinerecordings.com or the Iodine Instagram at iodinerecordings. And last but not least, don't forget to support this month's sponsor, Bridge Nine Records. Ryan, when you think Bridge Nine Records, what do you think? I used to work with Chris Wren at Bridge Nine. Uh, like I worked a long time ago, early 2000s. Bridge Nine, Death Wish, Liberated, The Print Shop, and The Kenmore Agency, uh, the booking agency. We all shared an office space in Salem, Massachusetts. That's where it started. So I used to see those guys every day when I went to work. See, we've got personal experience here, and Bridge Nine is sponsoring this month of shows. Everybody who's anybody has been on Bridge Nine Records. Let me just read off a couple of the bands for you. War on Women, Ten Yard Fight, Project X, New Found Glory, Jesus Peace, Iron Sheik, Death Threat, Buried Alive, Burn, American Nightmare. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And guess what? Right now, you can get 15% off any Bridge Nine order with the code NEWSCENEPOD. That's right. Enter the code NEWSCENEPOD for 15% off your order at checkout. Also, stop by the record store at 282 Randtool Street in Beverly, Massachusetts. It's open every Wednesday through Sunday starting at 11 a.m. They've got all the Bridge Nine stuff. They've got other punk releases. They've got it all. And Bridge Nine is doing record auctions on Instagram. Follow B9 Auctions to take part in the bidding. For more information, head to bridge9.com or to the Bridge Nine Instagram at Bridge Nine. That's Bridge N I N E. Okay. So, Ryan, let's talk music recommendations. We've got to give the goods to the people. What are you listening to lately, Ryan? Lay it on us. Oh, man. I. I listen to a lot of Sade. That's like when I don't know what I want to listen to, I put on fucking Sade. You like Sade? She's amazing. I uh, I can envision her voice in my head. She's like kind of one of those soulful, uh, really good singers, right? Oh man, yeah, unbelievable. That's yeah. like when when I, if I don't know what I want, I'm like, well, I know I know I always am in the mood for this. Sade, what else? Let's see, Sade, 
80s stuff. I'm mean, super into 80s stuff. Um, and then, like, if I want to listen to something heavy, I'm like, I've, I'm like one of those people that listens to the same like five records over and over and over again. You know, like if I want to hear, if I want to hear something heavy, I'll just put on like Neurosis. You know, um, and I just, it, I, I know that it's like you know when you go to a restaurant, you always order the same thing because you know you like it. I'm like that. Yeah, Neurosis is a good band for that. I mean, every album is a journey. You're going to get something amazing each time yeah. you listen to them. Yeah, and you, it, it's going to satisfy like a you know something you want to hear, but they but they have such yeah, like you said, they all the records sound so different. You know, they're also so. Here's my recommendation: the band is Bouquet featuring Kayak Jones. The song is called Tire Swing, and it's from the album Cardinal. This came on spotify radio while i was driving back from darling fire practice the other week and it's just i don't know it's like melodic hardcore it's kind of got that early 90s vibe where it's like spoken word with the screaming and singing and i really like it i'll add the song to the new scene 2023 spotify playlist so you can check it out there so listen check back in with me and ryan in segment three we're going to talk about how we are doing we're going to talk more about There Were Wires and everything they're up to. But right now, we are going to speak to Spencer Chamberlain of Under Oath. Enjoy. We are here now with Spencer Chamberlain. Spencer, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Yes, Spencer. It is wonderful to have you here. You've got a lot going on. You're on tour right now with Under Oath. You've got a new band, Slow Tide. You've done a lot. You're doing a lot. And we're going to cover all of that. But first, Spencer, let me ask you, how are you doing today? I'm great. Uh, We are three shows into the tour. And today's the first day off. So we had like three days in the pre-production of the tour. You know, like we you don't want only have to rehearse, but you have to get the lights right and all the production that you've rented. And so basically it's kind of like we just did six days straight, you know, f- full band. And then, you know, three of those being shows, but three of them were just kind of like a dress rehearsal almost, like if you were in a play, I guess. And so it's good to have a day off today. Uh, to just take a minute, you know, like 
get a little chill in, a little chill time in before we uh, we start back up tomorrow. Yeah, so I was looking at your schedule, and I saw that you had a day off, and I was like, oh, that's the exact day I'm talking to Spencer. And because I'm neurotic, I thought, oh, would I want to do a podcast on my day off? But then I thought about it more, and I was like, you know what? Yes, because when I have a day off and I do nothing, that drives me even crazier. I'd like to have something to do. What about you, Spencer? Yeah, I'm a, I, I like to stay pretty active. You know, like if I have a day off, like today, for example, we're in Pittsburgh and I woke up this morning, went to the gym, then found like a nice lunch spot to go to with the guys. And uh, later we're either going to do dinner or dinner in a movie. Some of the guys want to go see Cocaine Bear. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like it says it all in the title. Uh, exactly. But yeah, we'll see. You know, sometimes we just kind of chill all day on a day off, but we're so early on in the tour, we got a bunch of stuff done today. How have the first few gigs gone so far? Well, three sold out shows in a row. You can't complain about that, right? Um, and no technical difficulties, which is crazy because normally the first day of tour, no matter how prepared you are, something goes wrong, right? It's just how it goes. But luckily, the first show went off without a hitch. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I think. You do all of the preparation so that something will go wrong, right? So you do all of the preparation so that when it does go wrong, you're ready. You can get around it. Yeah. I mean, one, one would think so. <laughs> We've had some crazy stuff happen, but yeah, so far so good on the tour. Yeah. Can't complain. Amazing. Uh, did you have any of those crazy sandwiches in Pittsburgh that have coleslaw and French fries in them and stuff? Dude, okay. So we were talking about that yesterday. Uh, yeah. We've all done that Primanti Brothers. Super famous. I think the first time we did it, we were super excited about it. And then like after you've had it more than once, like we come through now, like last time I had it, I just, I, I think there's a lot of hype behind it, but I didn't really like it that much. But I'm also <laughs> like, I'm kind of a health freak when it comes to food and working out and all that stuff. So it's not going to be really my go-to <laughs> like let's throw down a sandwich with got French fries on it already. So um, it, it has to be a special occasion, I guess for me, but I think it's a one-time try type of thing. Yes. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say don't do it if you're in Pittsburgh, but I don't think I would do it again. So yeah, when uh, I was researching about you, Spencer, so you'll actually go to the gym while on tour if you have a day off, right? You'll find a local gym or something. Oh yeah, I I go before the shows too. I go in the morning, you know, five six days a week if if I can. Yeah, yeah, you gotta you gotta stay he healthy out here, man. Like you're not only playing, but you're performing. You know, like you're whether band people like to admit it or not, you're an entertainer. Right. Yeah. And no one wants to see some fat old guy up there who let himself go. You know, like, <laughs> let's be honest, no matter how good the band is, you are in the business of entertaining others. So I do it for my mental health. And I made a lot of changes in my life a handful of years ago that's kind of led me down this path. But I also think about it with my job. You know, it's like any moment, a younger, faster, better, kid is going to come along and take your place if you're not careful, you know, and it's, and I'm all about the younger generation doing what they do best, but like, I'm not going to stop trying or caring just because, you know, we've caught a wave with our band and people care, you know, like if people care, then I should care more about 
making sure I'm the best version of myself, you know? So every year that goes by, I try to be the healthiest, best version of me. I love that. Yeah. And I believe the energy you put into it is what you're going to get back out of it. Agreed. If everybody is just standing there, you know, some bands can get away with just standing there like Oasis, you know, people aren't looking for them to thrash guitars around and stuff, but under oath, people want to show. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, it's that, it's that genre, you know, like you can't expect the crowd to go off if you're not going off. So I agree with you a hundred percent. And honestly, it's not like, I don't know. I, I've, I've written music my whole life. I've played every genre there is pretty much. This band just happened to be the one that stuck. And, uh, I think with this style of music, like I love pretty much every genre, you know, a good song is a good song in my opinion. Uh, But with this genre in particular, the heavier side of the world of rock music, that should be natural. You know, like you shouldn't go on stage and have to try to put that energy out. There's something about writing and performing this, this style of music that it's natural to let go, you know, because a lot of these songs are, you're, my life isn't as dark as all of my lyrics tend to sound because I'm just writing for this style of music. I write from the darker places of, of my life and the struggles, you know, there's a lot of good shit that's happened in my life too. But this is like when you play this genre and you're writing songs from that part of your brain and that part of your life and your journey, when you get on stage, you just kind of let go of everything. And it, you just, you know what I mean? Like it's a natural movement and, release you know i don't know you're tapping into something that 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 just releases that energy i know exactly what you're talking about i was practicing a song for a band the other day and it's not incredibly heavy but it's heavy enough and i i'm like weaving in my room and just really feeling it and i can picture myself playing it and i'm like yes and it's the same feeling i get when i listen to a heavier band or i can get that feeling from any type of music like uh I could listen to a hip-hop song and feel that. I could listen to a hardcore song and feel that. I could listen to a really emotional, like, post-hardcore song and feel that. You're tapping into this this energy. I, I'm always searching for that feeling in music that I'm listening to, whatever the genre is. Yeah, I, I agree. You mentioned making some changes in terms of mental health. Talk about that. Well, I think for, for my my life... I've been doing like, I've been doing this my whole life. Like I said, and under oath started when we were teenagers and um, it picked up decently fast. I mean, we grinded it out for a good long minute, you know, a couple years in a van and playing in nobody and VFW halls. But when it did connect, it connected, you know, and it hasn't stopped since. And when we started this band, we were a Christian band, which is, uh, weird thing to say nowadays, I guess, but like at the beginning it was, and that was a lot of pressure on a group of kids turning into men, finding their individualities and suppose we were supposedly supposed to be all on the same page and on the same wavelength. And, and there's all this pressure that we have to believe the same things, not only like you know, you start off in a van and you're you're listening to the what's ever on the radio or the CD player or whatever you're putting the, the iPod on through the speakers of the van. And then you get a little bit bigger and things start going well. And now you're in a bus. Now you're not pulling over and all eating the same restaurant. Now you're waking up at the venue and everyone can go do what they want. And you start maybe 
not shopping at the same places. So now you're individually dressing and you're, you start to find your individuality and all of that as the band's growing, but we're supposed, there was so much pressure to be the same. And especially when you tack a religion on that, you're in a band, it's like being married to five other dudes. You know, it's really tough. There's a lot of personalities there. There's a lot of just communication breakdown, you know, like it's, it's hard to keep everyone happy and, and on the same page and healthy and wanting the same things. And uh, I think for me, it got to a point to where I didn't know who I was when I was a teenager, let alone in my twenties. And I'm supposed to be a leader of not only a band, but with a religious background to it, that's trying to point people in the right direction. And I don't even know what direction I'm going in. So I think a lot of, um, a lot of band-aids got put on that. You know, yeah. you start to find ways to escape from it. And for me, I, I, you know, I like to, I like using drugs and drinking and disappearing and not being around people as much as I could when I didn't have to be. And I think many years of that led to eventually it becomes super unhealthy, right? How long were you in that cycle? Over 10 years. Ah. Yeah. And, um, Eventually, it comes to a point where you you just start to kind of fall apart and nothing in your life's going very well. So when we got rid of the Christian band thing, it helped a lot because you can't forget with that and in that era of time, whatever you're going through, if you're questioning things, if you're not sure you believe the same things that these guys do, like you can't even talk about it with your quote unquote brothers, you know, like your family, whatever this is supposed to be, right? And uh, that is really tough because if you can't talk about it, you start to, you know, you start to suppress that stuff and, and just keep it on the inside. And that's, that's when bad shit starts to happen. And now you're not talking, you got no one to go to. So you're just kind of alienated and everyone in the band had their own vices that, that they were using to cope with all this stuff. And when we lift, when we said, look, let's not, let's just be a band. Like we don't write music about this anyway. Like we just, it's just something we decided to do when we were kids, you know, like let's just be a band and keep doing what we're doing. When did you start to try to get away from that? Like around what year, what album? 2009. Okay. Yeah. Um, and was there a lot of pushback? From the bandmates or the... Uh, well, let's say, uh, let's say from bandmates and from audience. Um. I think a lot of people didn't, you know, a lot of people were didn't even know we were a Christian band, and the people that did, they did push back. Were listening to us for the wrong reasons, anyway. You know, like if you can't let people find themselves, and you want to hold them to some uh, expectation that you have for them without knowing them, then you're not really a fan in the first place. And we still see some stuff now from that audience, you know, but. I don't know if that really matters. You know, the shows have gotten bigger every year and the songs do better and better and people are still coming out more so every time. So it's uh, not that we don't care about people or those people, but the people that push back and they say, you know, we're lost and one day we'll find our way back and all this stuff. They don't know the inside, how much healthier and happier the band is. Cause we had a lot of fucked up people dealing with a lot of fucked up stuff not able to talk about it. I mean, the band would not be abandoned anymore if we had to withhold that uh, Christian title still. It was just so unhealthy for us, so toxic for us. Not saying that Christianity necessarily has to be toxic. I don't, 
I'm not calling out any religion at all. I mean, people are entitled to believe whatever they believe and follow whatever they follow, whatever makes them happy and makes their life better. And it's not saying that Christianity doesn't make your life better. I'm not, I have always, I've been painted as this anti-Christian guy ever since those early interviews of us not being a Christian man anymore. But all I was really sharing was how unhealthy it was for me and my friends in the position that I was dealt and where I was in my life, like how it wasn't as loving and as accepting as it was claimed to be. And that was just the people that I was around and the, the Christian music scene was not very accepting. And the Christian music labels were definitely not accepting. And there was nowhere to go as a young man with an addiction problem with no one to talk to, you know, it was a terrifying place to live in that I wouldn't want anyone to go through that, you know, like that's the kind of stuff that people kill themselves over, you know, like they have just no, there's like no way out of that when everything around you is like, Oh, if you, you know, your life is over. If anyone finds out about this A, B and C, you know, like you, there's so much pressure there and you're a kid, you know, like I just found that, for us, it was unhealthy. Like our bass player was an atheist for years and he was so angry. Like he was so angry all the time. And it wasn't until we said that we can talk, you know, like you're not going to tell us something. We're not going to kick you out of the band for not believing the things that some of the other guys believe in. Like that's how a band should be. I mean, it's, we're talking about music here. We're not a worship band. We're not a gospel band. We're it's under oath for God's sake. You know what I mean? Like we were writing songs about life and struggling and death and addiction and, you know, depression. And like, we weren't, this isn't church, you know, so it, it definitely, it, it really, really helped when we lifted those uh, restraints on our, our social group on the bus, you know, and, and then allowing the band members to be able to talk freely about what they're going through, like like what brothers should be able to do. You know, like you should be able to talk to your homies about what's going on. Like if you're having a hard time at home or something you're going through or whatever, like this is great. We're talking now. Now we're now we're a ba- just a band making music, just like we always have. We just it was a hard place to live in for a while, but coming out the other side of it, seeing everyone happy and healthy with doing better they've ever done in their lives with happy, you know, happy families and kids and all this stuff. It's, it's beautiful to see. And the people on the outside that see it, that we're lost because we don't consider ourselves a Christian man anymore. Just, they don't know us, you know, I know us. Yeah. You're, you are individual people. You have to share your experience. So, okay. You started Christian. It's not who you are anymore. It's not your identity. Uh, you, ha- you have to be, if you're with the band, you have to be with the journey of the band and the people. Right, right. And, and I would say 98% of the people did that, you know, like, and, and didn't care and supported us through that. There was this small percentage of, you know, the people that only went to Christian shows, which by the way, we never played any of those. Like we played Cornerstone a few times, but that was it. Like we, there were other bands in our scene that were Christian hardcore bands or whatever, and they only did tours with Christian bands and stuff. We didn't do that. We just toured with whoever. Like we were just a band yeah. that happened to be a Christian band. Early growing pains, I think. And that's not to bash the religion by any means. It's just how I see our band, you know? Yeah. Take away the Christianity thing. Like a lot of bands have this problem, especially younger. We don't know how to communicate. No one sits down and says like, hey, what are you going through? 
okay, let's talk about that. That's one thing. But then you put the Christianity on top of it. And yeah, again, not bashing it. I'm just explaining it in in the context of your band. You feel like you have to portray this image and you can't share what's going on with you because it's, you know, like addiction is so forbidden in terms of contrast to, I guess, what Christianity stands for. Yeah, agreed. And, and, and you're more than right. Like put a bunch of teenagers, early 20s, boys in a tour bus around the world. And I would say 90% of them, 95% of them don't know how to communicate properly. The list of bands that have just imploded is endless of young people out on the road who they just can't handle it, you know, because of whatever reason, drugs, communication, pressure, whatever it is. Man, all of it. There is no school for that. You know what I mean? Like, like we went to school and they learn all this stuff about whatever they teach you in high school and no one taught us anything about how to properly manage your finances and credit and real communication and real listening, you know, like all this stuff that actually mattered, none of it was taught in school, at least for my occupation. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) someone could have told, told me some of this stuff about when I was in high school, you know, but like you, you figure it out and, and it makes you who you are. And I'm, I'm very proud of where we're at as a band and as individuals. And it did take a lot, took a lot to get there, you know? I'm curious about your journey through addiction. That's my story too. I was in the cycle of addiction and I pulled myself out of that and was finally able to start living a life and do things that I want to do. So I'm curious about your story. You know, you're you're in this cycle for 10 years. I'm I imagine this is going on while you're in the band out on the road performing and it's just getting progressively worse. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it was over 10 years of of hiding that and in li- living that, you know. Um and I was really good at it. That was the scariest thing is that I never missed an interview, I never missed a sound check, never missed a meet and greet, never fucked up a show and just hit it really well. Do people ever tell you like, oh, like in reference to that time, do they ever say like, oh, you were fine or, oh, I couldn't tell. People tell me that and it's the absolute worst thing that I could hear because uh, my diseased brain is like, oh, let's go do it again then. We were fine. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I I hear it all the time. Yeah. Like, oh, I never knew. Oh, I couldn't tell. Yeah. I was, that was, that was the scariest part, right? It's just how good you are at hiding it. Yeah. Because people now... I can tell the second somebody is high if they're around me. Oh yeah. Like I'm, I mean, I should be a detective. <laughs> I mean, I can tell, <laughs> like I can walk into a room, I can go into a bar and tell you who's high, who's using drugs in the bathroom, how they're handing it off, how they're getting it. I I can know it all. Like the within been in there for 15 minutes, <laughs> you know, I could scope out who's probably selling what and where to get what or who to talk to. Like I, I knew how to do the game. I can sense when drugs are nearby without even seeing them. I walk down a certain street and I'm like, I know I could get X, Y, and Z close to here. Yeah. And it's a game, you know, and that's part of the game is finding it, using it, hiding it. Yes. Start over, repeat, you know, like that, that becomes part of the, the addiction of it is like, you could be out with a group of people and no one knows that you're going to 
meet one of these people at this place that you're at that's going to sell you what you want. You're going to use it in this bathroom. They won't know. You come out, have another drink with them, carry on a conversation, go to another bar, you know, so on and so forth. And it's all part of your like solo side missions, you know, like you're <laughs> playing a video game and you got the side missions that no one else is on. And it's like, it's just part of your daily routine of something that you're doing, let alone the addiction of the drug itself, you know, right. Which everyone's heard about all that millions of times before, but there's all these other elements to it that you really have to reprogram your whole life when it comes to just living after that, you know? Yeah. How did you, realize it wasn't working for you anymore that lifestyle well first of all i woke up one day and looked in the mirror and just didn't like what i saw i looked kind of haggard and like i didn't look like myself um it started to catch up with me i think and i wanted to make that change so i stopped drinking beer and i was like i'm only gonna drink clear liquor and and i'm gonna start you know eating healthier and then I was in this kind of toxic relationship and the girl that I was with was a, like just an alcoholic and wasn't, we didn't really have a good, you know, we met each other. We were both at the bottom, you know, like misery loves company. Right. And I've always, always pulled myself out of that shit. And I've been down there many times, but I've always pulled myself up to a higher ground than I, than I fell from the first time or the time before. I've done this many times in my life, like up and down, up and down, up and down. And every up is higher and every down is lower. And so I started to put my life back together and she just stayed down there. And it was just, it was toxic. And uh, when I ended that, when I broke up with her, normally that's my excuse to be like, I'm going to go party hard. And, you know, I was living in New York, you know, I'm like, I'm going to, go on dates with fucking models and go out to bars and party when I want to. <laughs> and instead I was like, so I'd already slowed down a lot with the drinking and I'd slowed down a lot with the drug use. It was, it was, it wasn't every day anymore. And uh, I don't know why it just, it was just, I was kind of cleaning up. Like I said, it started with food and, and the way I was drinking. And then when I got out of that relationship, normally, like I told you, like my mindset would be like, oh, I'm going to go do whatever the fuck I want and have the best time. And I was like, you know what? That was so toxic and like the biggest turnoff you could imagine. I'm going to like get healthier. I'm going to work out. Like I'm going to join a gym. So I joined a gym and now I'm partying once a week and I'm going to the gym and I'm eating healthy and I'm starting to sleep good because I'm not on drugs all the time. And um, that started to feel better to me than when I missed the gym, the one or two days a week that I would party and be so hungover that I had to stay in bed till four in the afternoon. So now I'm getting mad at myself for being hungover and not being able to work out. So I guess I'd kind of replaced one addiction with another, right? But I've, I found a healthier one. So now I'm like, okay, I want to hate, I guess I don't want to sound like I'm too mean here, but like this ex-girlfriend of mine is just such a negative thing that I don't want anything to do with my life. And I'm working out now. I'm like, you know what? Like that whole like drinking all the time and just all that shit, you know, like I'm like, I'm just going to see how long I can go. I'm, I didn't say this is it. I'm never doing drugs again. I'm on a journey, this, that, and the other. 
I was like, let's just see how long I can go. And I just started to really fall in love with eating well. And I cut my alcohol intake by, I'm drinking like a quarter of what I used to drink. And I'm working out and eating healthy and like sleeping great. And like, I don't know. I just felt like this is something I need to do for now, you know? And I think that's how I got out of it is because I just said for now, I didn't put this unrealistic pressure on myself. That's like, now I'm clean and sober and I'm going to go post that online and post how many days it's been and how many days is this <laughs> and look my journey. Like, and I know that does help some people and some people need that. And maybe that's what keeps them accountable to themselves and to others. I just was just trying to be better. Like I said earlier in the interview, like just be a better version of myself. And that means like singing more, writing more songs, working out more, skateboarding more, all the things that I enjoy that have nothing to do with dark bars and sitting up till sunrise, you know? Yeah. And it just, it started to feel like I was just kind of living again. So I just didn't put too much pressure on myself and like, you know, relapse once or twice here and there. And then when that would happen, it wasn't like, I'm going to party all night. It would be like, oh, fuck. Why did I do that? You know, like what a dumbass, you know, like in, in it flips. Yeah. And, and that was, that was the first time that happened. That was a huge, huge eye opener for me. It was my manager under us manager was like, I'm not mad at you. Cause there was people that were mad at me, extremely mad at me when this happened, like unhealthy. I fucked up, you know, like I shouldn't have done that. And, yeah. and, and, I'm getting a lot of heat for it. And my manager is the one who called me and was like, dude, this is part of recovery. Did you want to keep going when you did it? I said, no, I fuck, I was so mad at myself. He's like, that's your first step. That's the first step in the right direction in your life. You needed to do this. You needed to fuck up once to feel that you don't like that anymore. Like you like the memory of that. You have an idea that's like, you're, like you romanticized it, right? You know, yeah. you're thinking it's this, wonderful fun time like getting high is fun and you're out and you're partying and talking to everyone everyone thinks you're cool and you're great and people are everywhere you know but like realistically when you do it again you realize that like this is terrible i feel like shit i'm gonna feel like shit tomorrow this is awful i hate that it doesn't feel the same anymore yeah no and that was all i really needed to just stay that path of like and then i did have some substance abuse therapy after a while I was kind of like a dry drunk in a way, I guess, like where I was having all these really high highs emotionally and really low lows emotionally. Like and we were writing a record and I was just kind of a mess. Like I'd be the nicest dude ever one day and the next day I'd be like bawling tears for no reason or just get my feelings hurt really easy or get really mad really easy. And I was just like all over the place just because all those chemicals in your brain are trying to level themselves back out. So I just asked for help at that point. And uh, the therapy was very much needed. And uh, I should have done it a lot sooner. You kind of revert back to whatever age you were before all of this started. Like I, I started using harder drugs when I was 18. I was much older when I stopped. And but when I stopped, I was just that scared terrified 18 year old kid again. And I basically had to learn how to become an adult for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, it's great. Now I've got a daughter now she's 18 months old. It's like the center of my universe. 
right? Nice. And I can cook dinner and pour a glass of wine and forget that it's there. Or I can have a glass, you know, I can have a drink on the tour bus tomorrow and not pour a second one. Oh, really? So you can moderate now? I mean, I don't even care. The idea of getting, like, I still drink. People have gotten this twisted in some way. Like, I'm clean and sober off drugs, but I do still drink, you know, but not heavily. But drinking was never really my problem. And uh, I can take it or leave it. And I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, like I could have a drink today or or not. And it, it wouldn't really matter to me. So I'm lucky that I, I can do that. I can, you know, I've done it before. Where I poured a drink, I'm cooking dinner. You know, I put my daughter down and I'm like cooking. And then I eat dinner and forget that's there and just go to bed. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. So it, it is a, it's nice that I'm now to the point where I could go to a bar with the guys and just have a drink or not have a drink. And be fine. Uh, But it took a long time to get there. That's great. Yeah, I had to give it all up. I found that no matter what I did, you know, even if I just tried to drink or took these drugs out of the equation, I would end up in a very, very dangerous situation over and over again. So I just, I gave it all up. But it's fine because I had a nice long run. Uh, It was enough. I feel you. Yeah. So it sounds like you've got it figured out now. And to anyone struggling who listens to this show. It's, it sounds like I do 12-step. I found, I think 12-step is great for people who are very desperate and have tried everything else. I tried everything else and nothing worked. And, you know, and now I'm involved in recovery, 12-step, all that good stuff. I go to meetings anywhere from four to six times a week, depending on the week. Spencer, it sounds like fitness really helped you. You said you're going to the gym, what, five times a week, even when you're on tour? Yeah sounds like the key is you just got to pour your heart and soul into something positive. You know, I've heard people say that they threw themselves into music and that helped them. I've heard people say they throw themselves into fitness, that helps them. I throw myself into recovery, helping myself and others. That helps me. I have a community now. So it's just, you know, it's got to be some positive force that outweighs all the drugs and the alcohol. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't have an answer. I think. I try to not be the guy that tells everyone I've been the guy on the other end, receiving the information from people like you got to do what I did because of A, B, C, and D, you know, like (laughs) getting talked at, not really talked to or with, you're not having a communication. Like someone's kind of preaching at you, you know, it doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work. So I try to tell people that like, look, I'm going to share my journey and what, I've done. And I do that with my lyrics and I do it in interviews. And I do it if you meet me at a meet and greet, whatever you want to talk about. Sometimes I talk about it from stage. I was doing that for a while until I stopped because one of our crew guys was a dickhead. So I stopped. What happened? He he started sending around like I would I'd mess up my words a lot and I'm like on in the moment and he just decided to start sending it around to all these people like the stupid shit I would say. And I, you know, I'm just trying to help people. And so I just stopped. I was like, okay, cool. All it takes is a guy on the inside to be an asshole and I'll just keep my mouth shut. So is he still on the crew? Nope. Fired him. <laughs> but I, I don't forget that kind of stuff. That's not cool. Yeah. Um, so for now, I've just, I, I do it in interviews. I do it in songs and I do it in meet and greets. I don't really talk about stuff from stage at the moment. Um, it's been a couple of years, but 
I'd just like to share just honesty because, you know, we, we also had another crew guy that was sober and he didn't like how I got sober. So he hated me. And I never even really talked to him about it. Like he just hated that I would drink and talk to people about getting off drugs. So we don't work together anymore. That's weird. That's what I don't want. You know, like that's the last thing I want. Like, I don't care if you don't drink. Yeah. Because I drink and you don't, but you're doing some way worse shit than I am. But that's okay. Cause it's not substance. And I, and you know, I don't ever want anyone else to feel that way. And I'm, I'm in a band. So I get, I get it on all these different levels, but that's not cool. So I don't, I try not to make people feel that way. So I try to be transparent of like, look, I will listen to your story. I will tell you my story. I'll be there if you need me, like anyone, like that's the whole point of writing lyrics is hopefully that it, it affects someone in a positive way. That's the best, most beautiful thing there is. And we get that a lot. Like your music saved my life or your lyrics saved my life, all that stuff. Like that's the ultimate reward. But to pretend like my way of doing it is the right way or your way of doing it is the right way. It's like, I can't give that to you. And I don't know what will work for you. That's up to the person to find out. Right. And it's and no one should be ridiculing you for anything. The people that love you and accept you need to be there for you. If they're not, get them the fuck out of there. You know what I mean? Like you, you need understanding love. You need unconditional love and compassion. And uh, so, yes, sometimes there's tough love for sure. But like if people are going on their journey their own way, like don't tell them that they're wrong. You know, like if they're going on their recovery journey, I guess is what I should say. You know what I mean? Like someone listening to this could be going about it a completely different way, but it's working for them. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I couldn't drink. If I had one drink, I would probably end up dead somewhere. That's, that's just the way it goes. You can drink and moderate and still be okay. I'm happy for you and anybody that can do that. It's up to the individual to figure out what works for them. And that's different for everybody. And even how they get there. Yeah. I took it on myself until the weight was too heavy to bury. And then I asked for help. Other people ask for help when they're at rock bottom using all day long. Yep. Um, other people never ask for help. Other people check themselves into rehab or forced into rehab. Like it, there's no right way to do it. It's just, you have to be willing to do it. And you can't tell someone when they're willing to do it. Like if you would have told me seven years ago when I was using that, I had to stop and I'm going to tell you why. And you'll thank me later. I'd just be like, all right, cool, bro. Fuck off. And I'm going to go do a plot. <laughs> right. You know? So, yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the toughest part is there is no way to explain it. You know, it's so hard to explain, I guess. Under Oath has two gold records. Can you believe it? Yeah, it's pretty crazy, right? Records <laughs> used to sell. Do you have the uh, the framed gold record like hanging on your wall? Yeah, I've got both of them. I love that. That's what I was. That's the first thing I pictured when I was reading about it. I would I would want that displayed somewhere. Yeah, dude, it's it doesn't happen a lot anymore now because it's streaming era. But like, I have got I've got them both in my house. I guess the band saw a pretty incredible jump after they're only chasing safety, right? Now, I, I did some research. Times were still tough leading into this record, right? Still sleeping on floors, still grinding it out. Oh, yeah. So how soon after the album comes out do you see this uh, 
this jump? Was it an immediate success? I don't think we really, it's hard to say because like we were on tour when it came out and it started to catch on without us really knowing. Ah. And then we were booked all of our days off in other venues. We were on the Warp Tour when it came out and we had all the off days booked. And it wasn't until those small rooms, like no one expected it. So it's not like they were like, oh, let's go put them in these really big rooms. Like all of the stuff we had booked was just small. It was just selling out. And then noticing that people were singing the words was like a huge thing for me because uh, that had never happened before. And that was like success in my book, you know? Yeah. And then after that, we tried a little bit bigger rooms and a little bit, you know, I didn't really know where we were at until Define the Great Line came out and it sold about a hundred thousand copies the first week. And I remember calling my older brother and asking him if that was good. <laughs> like I just, you know, I was a kid. I didn't know, you know, I, numbers are very important nowadays because of everyone's streaming and, you know, your Instagram followers and your TikTok numbers and your Facebook followers. Like, it's like, there's so many numbers that and so many people are concerned about numbers, but in 2006, you didn't really care. Yeah. Things weren't uh, so viral yet. Like now you see the, all the PR blasts, all the viral videos, all the things going around Instagram, you know, what's hitting and what's not. But back then it was just MySpace. Yeah. And I didn't even have a MySpace. How did you end up hooking up with Under Oath? They lost the first singer, right? How did you get connected with them? Talk about joining the band. I was in a signed band as the singer and we played a couple shows together. I was friends with Chris, the keyboard player, and they got to the point where they asked their singer to leave and asked me if I could, if I wanted to join the band. And I said, no, because I was in a band with my older brother at the time. You know, I was like, I'm not going to ditch my brother, you know, like, so I said, no. And then they did this tour with a fill-in guy and didn't work out so well. And then when they came back, you know, I saw Chris again and, and he asked again, if I would join the band. And I think it was my older brother, like took me out to lunch and was like, I think, you know, you should do it. I'm going to do something else. You know, like I'm going to move back to North Carolina, which is where we're from. And he was like, I think, you know, this is what you're born to do. You should do it. So I, I remember telling Chris, I was like, yeah, sure. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll come to practice. And at least I agreed to do these two shows that they had. And then at the first practice, I guess they were just like, you're our guy. Like we want you to do this. And we didn't really talk about it. It just, we just went to that first practice and never stopped. You know, it was just kind of like a natural thing. It's like where the band kind of started, you know, we were writing songs at the first practice. Oh really? So yeah. So it must've been instant chemistry. Yeah, it was. That's great. And plus, you know, they're they're pursuing you. So it's it's not like there's a series of tryouts and we're figuring it out. It was just like, you're our guy, we need you. And it sounds like it was off to a running start from that first practice. Yeah. Yeah, it was. How old were you when you joined the band? I was a teenager still. So I, I want to say my late teens, maybe I was 19. Do you think you would have ended up joining had your brother not taken you out to lunch and said, I think you should do this? I don't know. You know, like I really didn't like the demos they showed me. (laughs) (laughs) 
I thought it was terrible. And um, I don't know, the first practice, it was different. I'd been in bands my whole life. And when I got in that room, there was something else I felt, you know, and I was like, oh, shit. Because I've always been the youngest guy in bands and like kind of leading the charge on everything. And then I got into a room with people my age that were bringing equal to the table. And I just felt it in the first practice, like, whoa, this is what it should feel like. Yeah. So it was it instant click. I think I would, I think it would have eventually, yeah, because I, I think I agreed to, to fill in for those shows no matter what. And then my brother was like, you should do this, like for real, for real. Yeah, it's good that you went with that. I, the first band I was in, I was 24, and I had your attitude. I didn't think about things like, oh, you could be in multiple bands or you could pers- maybe see what else is around, try different things. I think at one point someone was even like, hey, I'm putting this band together and you have the look. I think you'd be good for this. And I was like, oh, no, I'm already in a band. Like, I didn't even think like, oh, you can be in two bands. You know, it's just, I guess you don't think about that so much when you're younger. Yeah. So you're 19 when you join. How old are you now? We're all in our late 30s. I think Grant might be a little bit older. So, yeah. So 19 when you join, late 30s. And I I mean, Under Oath has been on an, an incredible run. It sounds like since you've joined. Yeah, we're about to, next year will be 20 years, you know, of us doing it like this with these people. Voyeurist. I want to talk about this record because it's my favorite of any I've heard by the band. This was your first self-produced record? Yeah, correct. And, you know, talking about overcoming those communication barriers, I've read about the recording of this record. You know, you learn to break down whatever communication barriers you had at that time, how did you do it? Let me start here. How did you decide to self-produce? Well, we were writing the record. We decided to write as a unit in the same room, like the four of us that write these records. And we have our own like studio space. So we kind of like pulled our gear together and set it up to make really good pre-production. Like, let's write the record and let's pre-pro it out ourselves to get started, right? And we were going to use the same producer that did Erase Me. And we started doing it and the demos were just sounding incredible, like sonically speaking. And we were just on a wave that we felt like another person in the room would only complicate things. So... We've always wanted to self-produce, but we were never mature enough to. Mm -hmm. Like our friendships were too fragile. Too many feelings could get hurt. And not saying that they didn't get hurt making Voyeurist and people got pissed. Some people punched walls. Some were some fuck yous. There were some laughs and hugs as well, you know? So it's a hard thing to do. But after, you know, being a band for as long as we have and the knowledge that we've gained and the gear that we've purchased over the years, like it got to the point to when we were done with writing and doing the pre-production, we were like, why don't we just have a producer come in just for vocals? And then most of the producers we talked to wanted to be all or nothing. So we just said, fuck it. Like we don't need someone here in the room. Like we don't need someone here for two months with us. Uh, Let's just do it ourselves and let's see how it goes. And if we get out the other side and we feel like 
if the team feels like it's not the best thing we've done, then we'll hire a producer to come in and help us work on the things that need working on. And when we were done, no one felt that way. So yeah, we finished it and put it out. And uh, it was kind of like one of those things that just kind of fell into place. And that's probably how, you know, we, that's how we did the new song that came out two days ago, self-produced as well. So I guess it's what we do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, voyeurist just sounds so locked in. So I guess while you're writing it, you're just like, Hey, this is really working. Did you feel that you didn't need someone for the first time? Like, did you, with earlier albums, did you feel like you needed a producer to help sort through all the madness? Well, not necessarily. I think everyone in our band is capable of getting to the finish line. The writers, like, so there's me, Tim, Chris, and Aaron that are in the studio. I think all of us could probably get to that finish line, individually speaking. But getting us all on the same page to the finish line is the hard part. Right. And I think we figured out how to do that as we've become more mature. But I think we needed a mediator as kids. We didn't know how to communicate, which we've talked about already. And we didn't know what we wanted, which we've talked about already. And we didn't know how to get there without having someone in the middle going, this guy's on to something here and your idea is not the way we want to go and vice versa. You know, like... Because there's a lot of push and pull in the band of different directions to go with every song or album or whatever. So producers nowadays kind of like write. And they're fully hands-on. We just had people record us that helped us from not killing each other in the past. <laughs> so they, you would write the music. And I guess, you know, if someone was on to something, they'd say, all right, we're going to go in this direction, not this direction. And someone would, someone would be upset probably, but... We know which way to go now. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like as the songs were coming together, like having an older person in the room being like, well, this part's not that great. Like, let's fix this. Or what are we doing here? You know, like this is, you know, yeah, we had some, uh, someone steering the ship in a way, I guess. And it's good that you had that too, you know, that, that you had that opportunity to have mediators and producers or maybe managers or whoever it was helping you. Yeah, absolutely. And we do have a new single, Let Go. The band is now with MNRK Heavy, yes? Yep, Monarch, yep. Well, the new single is great. I love that. What what can we look forward to? Is there a new album in the works or yeah, what's going on? Yeah, we'll be dropping singles all year um, and eventually a full piece of music as an album. I've read interviews with you where you know you say heavy music isn't something you really do unless it's with Under Oath. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's just, I kind of saved that side of me for, for them. I know you've um, been interested in heavy music in the past. Like I've heard some interviews where you mentioned Poison the Well, Every Time I Die, some of those foundational early 2000s hardcore bands. Were you into that stuff at the time? Yeah. When I was a kid, I went to a lot of those shows, you know? Yeah. I grew up on my parents' music, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, Rolling Stones, and the Beatles, and and then I fell in love with the grunge era. You know, I, I, I was too young for the '80s hair metal stuff, but I I really came alive in the gr the grunge stuff. And I was too young to be listening to it, but I had an older brother and two older stepbrothers. You know, so I was around cool music all the time, and uh, that is like kind of why I decided to start writing music. And you know, I saw Nirvana and 
Soundgarden and Stone Temple Pilots and Pearl Jam and uh, Alice in Chains, all that stuff was just so rad to me. And then, uh, you know, I also loved the Brit rock thing that came after that. And I also loved the Linkin Park Deftones era of heavy music. And I, I loved, I kind of love everything. You know, I, one day I would listen to Poison the Well and straight into Coldplay. You know, like I just, I just love good music, you know? Yeah, Coldplay was one of the accepted mainstream bands among scene people. I, I And Radiohead was one of my favorite bands too. Oh, yeah. And uh, you mentioned Oasis earlier, and Liam Gallagher has been one of my idols since I was a kid. You know, there's nothing cooler than Liam Gallagher. Yeah, the, the music and the attitude. It's the perfect combination. It's the whole thing. <laughs> like, well, him and Dave Grohl are like the last two remaining real rock stars. Right. In my opinion. Dave Grohl is the fucking man. He's incredible. Everything he touches is awesome. And I think Liam is too. I think even Liam's solo stuff is fucking awesome. I just get, can, we could get an Oasis reunion, then we'd really be talking. I would, I would fly to the UK for that. It's going to happen at some point. It has to. It, I think it'll be the biggest reunion of all time. Yeah. In terms of uh, rock reunions, it would be the biggest right now, without a doubt. What, what could be bigger? Nothing. Like even if even if they did like a piecemeal Nirvana thing, like oh we have uh, Dave and Chris and some person, Oasis would be bigger than that. Nirvana doesn't work without Kurt. So what else? What else have we got? Nothing. What like nothing? I was I was reading an interview or listening to an interview about when he does knob worth or whatever net worth. You know Bono couldn't do it alone. You know Mick Jagger couldn't do it alone. They all try. Robert Plant couldn't do it alone. Right. But Liam did it alone. He could still do it. Like th- there's nothing cooler or bigger, I don't think. And normally the main, the most, the biggest band in the world normally isn't cool. You know, normally it's like with Michael Jackson. I mean, it's debatable if it's cool or not. But you know what I mean? Like that's typical mainstream sound, or like you know what I'm saying? Like whatever these big pop things are. But the fact that Oasis is the biggest band like in the world still. And they're just all attitude and fuck yous is so sick. <laughs> like, yeah, because the biggest band in the world is usually like Imagine Dragons or the Chainsmokers or it's something like that. Yeah, like, yeah, uh, straight pop, right? Yeah. Like something very digestible and easy listening, easy everything. But Oasis is a very different thing in the fact that it's, oh man, it's, it's such a thing. I don't know. Such a vibe. I don't know how to explain it, but it's cool as shit. Let's talk about Slow Tide. Hey yo, hey yo. Now, if, if you that's your solo work, right? You do all of this by yourself. Yeah, I wrote and recorded the whole record in the back of my house, and then I went to my buddy Micah, and I hired a producer for that because there's no one to bounce stuff off of when you're doing it alone. So I don't have a bandmate. So I wanted to. My friend's a great producer, and I I went to his house for two weeks and recut the whole record and rewrote some stuff while we were there because he did point out a few weak spots, which I'm glad that he did because I couldn't see it without a bandmate, you know? So it was a wonderful experience, and I am excited to make the second record, and the first one hasn't even come out yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask because I was listening to it, and I see some singles out there. There's two new singles out there. Yep. Everyone should check them out, Lay Low and Neck High. And then I saw another one, but I didn't see an album. 
Yeah, the album's done. It's been done. It's I could put it out right now, but I'm I've got to build a following and I've got like it's a different era, you know, like things have to be streaming and people have to care online. I've never been an online persona guy either. I don't have a very big Instagram. I've never have been on Facebook. I've never been on a lot of these social networks. Uh, but I've got to build this thing because, you know, I could have done some easy cash grab and made a metalcore band and, every, and half of Under Oath's followers would have come straight over. But I wanted to make music that I cared about, that I listened to, that I love, that is a different side of me. It's a different side of my writing, a different side of my lyric writing and my music writing. It's a whole different side of my brain. And it's just, it makes me happy. And I'm just, I'm going to give it as equal attention as I put into Under Oath, I'll be putting into this. So um, it's one single at a time for now until we break into some sort of um, snowball effect, right? You know, like at some point, songs start streaming faster and get on playlists and people start noticing. It just takes a couple songs to get there when you're starting from the bottom, you know, because be it that there's a small team involved, but it's not, I can't rely on anything I've built in the past because everything I've built in the past is a completely different genre. You know, like everyone that books these bands and does these festivals and plays this style of music is opposite of what Slow Tide is doing. Exactly. So it's like I don't have really a foot in the door and I don't expect to deserve it. You know, I, I don't expect that it's like, oh, the singer from Under is making indie alt rock. Like let's, give him a free get out of jail free card so we can go straight up to the top, you know, like, no, I got to like work and prove why people should listen to me in a different genre than just under oath, you know? And I'm okay with that. Like I accept the challenge and the work and the effort to be put in. Um, I'm just happy that I can do it without getting crucified. You know, that's a lot of fun and no one's mad at me for doing it, which makes me happy. I think you have a very healthy approach about this thing. You know, you it, it's a new thing. It does sound very different from Under Oath. And uh, you got to start over. On purpose, though. Why would I want to do the same thing twice? You know, like, yeah, I don't need to do it. That's the thing. I don't need to do this. I love it. I love music. I'm a fan. The minute I pretend that I'm not, my career should be over, Right. Take me out in the street and shoot me, right? I see it all the time. These bands on tour, they get big and they start pretending like they're not fans of all this shit that they grew up listening to or the bands around them in the scene. And, you know, like they stop going to shows and they stop wearing band shirts and they, you know, they're just all of a sudden you're a cool guy and you're like an internet star. I'm like, what? that should, that doesn't translate well with me. Like I grew up going to shows because I fell in love with music and I fell in love with the guitar and then I fell in love with songwriting and singing and playing and watching and idolizing over these songs and bands. And like that never stopped. Like we just derailed on a 10 minute Liam conversation. Right. You know, like I go to shows when I'm not playing shows. If my friends come in town, I'm supporting them. If it's a band that I'm not friends with that I love, I'm buying a ticket. I'm going. Like, I love this shit and I want to make more music. I don't want to just make Under Oath. I want to do as much as I can because I enjoy it and I actually fucking love it. So I think your passion is the reason you're still successful because, yeah, I, I hate that thing where 
people just retire. I don't ever want to retire. Like I've, I've, there's been people I look up to and I think they're excited about music and I get really excited about a band and I'm like, you have to hear this. And they're like, meh. Like, and I'm like, really? No, like I'm not going to as many shows as I used to, but I love talking to musicians. I love putting this show together. I'm in, I'm still playing music. I'm still going to shows sometimes. I'm still enthusiastic about finding the next band that's going to give me that rush. And I don't ever want that to go away. Right. Because I think once you do, yeah, what are you really doing at that point, you know? Yes. So talk about the slow tide arrangements. What instruments are you using? I hear some electronic elements in there. Do you have like standard bass and guitar as well? Yeah, I, I played bass and guitar on every song, real drums on every song. There's some electronic drums happening like loops and stuff but um and then all the all the keys is just you know nowadays it's just synth plugins you know i was just using different plugins and different key sounds i used to have like a moog and uh like a little fatty moog and i used to have uh my friend had a nord and we also had a uh man what was the other thing we had we ended up getting rid of all that stuff over time like the it's expensive equipment that breaks a lot and uh and now with plugins now i mean we don't even use real amps anymore like under oath doesn't we use you know amp simulators like the the plugins game has become such a huge 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 thing and it, and like you don't miss anything like the 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 amps sound exactly how you want them to and you can recreate that sound live so so you don't even use real amps anymore live no, we use we use amp sims just like we do on the record. Wow. Most bands do as well. Things seem to be going that way. I don't know what it's called, but people won't necessarily use the giant pedal board with 90 pedals anymore. There's like some thing that they use. Oh, I mean, you, you've got, yeah, Tim, Ableton switches all your pedals, right? Yeah. Yeah, we run Ableton and, and we have it set to where his effects are changing on their own. So it leaves a lot. It, what it does is it leaves a lot of less room for error. Not that your guitar player or if it's me playing guitar or whoever won't hit the pedal, right? That's not the hard part. It's all the little wires connecting the pedals on your, on your pedal board. Yes. There's so many nights where something doesn't work because one of those cables went bad and now you got to figure out which one your guitar takes out there. You missing guitar for three songs, you know um, what really the digital game ha- has done has made it, Number one, a lot easier to recreate your sound live, but also traveling. Like, you know, when we go overseas, we used to have to rent amps and then you get over there and the amps are all fucked up and they're not, they don't sound like your amp in America. And now you're lugging it around everywhere. And then you got to fly to a different country and rent different ones and lug those around. Like, so really you're flying with a flight case, you know, with it's, it's hard, you know, like a rack space of worth of gear and recreating your sound in every country the way it should be. And there's a lot less room for things to not work because of cabling and all that. So it really does keep the show going a lot better for everybody. So what does it run through? Like, what are you plugging your guitar into? They're, they use Fractal, I think. They just got a new one that we're using in the studio now. But there's always a new, there's def- a couple different companies that do this. Interesting. We've come a long way. Yeah. <laughs> So you're on tour now. How long is this tour going to run until? This tour goes until April 2nd is the last show. 
Is it hard to be away? I mean, you got a young kid now, right? Yeah, that's the hardest part, right? You don't want to be away from your kid. So that's the downfall of the job. Yeah. But, you know, when I'm home, I'm home. I'm 24 hours a day dad, you know? So unless I'm in the studio, you know, like I'm other people with normal jobs, they're leaving every day from nine to five. You know, my kid's up at 7.30 and goes to bed at seven. So it doesn't leave much time at a, with a nine to fiver, you know? So at least when I'm home, I'm I'm like, I get to spend all day with her. That's great. Yeah. How many tours will Under Oath typically do in a year? Last year, we only did one, but we did a lot of flyouts for festivals and stuff. We typically do more than one, though. That's not a bad gig. Maybe one, maybe two tours a year, some festival dates. That beats going to an office every day. Yeah. But the good thing about the whole pandemic, we, obviously, there's so many bad things about it, but the good thing is that it's pushed remote working along, you know? Like, I, I worked remote before the pandemic, but now it's just, you know, so many more people are doing it remote, which is the way it should be. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of work from anywhere now. So let's talk about what we've got coming up. Now, any announcement about a Slow Tide record? Do we have a record name? Do we have a label? What can the people expect? There is a label. There is a record. There is more singles to drop. So I think there'll be another song dropping either the end of the month or the early next month. And then I think, you know, we have a, a, a set tentative date for the album to come out in the summer. But it really depends on how long it takes to build the project. You know, there's no point to put out the record tomorrow when no one knows it exists. If the songs are are streaming over a million streams, that's a different story. You drop an album because you've got everyone's attention, you know? Yes. Um, but right now, it's just go song by song until we get some sort of, we hit a stride to where people start noticing and start getting on playlists and maybe some radio stations or satellite radio, whatever it is to where the momentum picks up enough to where there is a, a demand to drop the record. Um, but we have it. We're, we're going to make the call when it's right, but it'll be this year. Uh, just kind of we, it, the beauty of being with a boutique, smaller record label is that we, we can change things around like, a lot of record labels, like things are put in motion. Like we're going to release this song on this date, this song on this date, this song on that date, and then the album and we're off, you know, uh, video for this one, lyric video for that one, lyric video for this one. This is more of like a, everything that does better, the more people that listen, the better chance I have of making a better music video on the next one. And the better chance I have of playing live shows. It's like, I'm really building a community here. It's like, it's all in the hands of the listeners. The better it does, the more it streams, the more momentum we pick up the more shit I can do with it. But I can't do that yet. We're not even close. So right now, it's it's going to be at least two or three more singles before we can even decide if the album will come out in summer or is it going to be more looking like winter? You know what I mean? I see. Hopefully summer, because I think it's good summertime music. It is. It's very summertime music. But I got to get, I got to build this thing, you know, like, I, it, it's going to take some time. So, and there'll be gigs, right? Slow tide gigs eventually. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. And let's talk about what we've got coming up for Under Oath. We do have a new single out. Let go. There will be a new album on Monarch Heavy. Yes, 
Yes. New single Let Go came out on Friday. Um, a music video is coming out soon for that song as well. All right. So we've got to look forward to that. There's a lot of good things coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Spencer, I want to thank you so much for coming on this show. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate all the music you've given the world. I really appreciate what you and Under Oath are doing. So keep it up and thank you. Awesome. Thank you. And there you have it, Spencer Chamberlain. Amazing conversation. You know, my favorite episodes, Ryan, are episodes like that where there's a lot of good recovery talk. And I like that Spencer's story was a little different. You know, it's certainly different from mine. I was in the depths of addiction for quite a long time, and I had to put it all down and walk away from everything forever because, you know, if I try to pick up anything... I end up in a really bad spot again, no matter what. But I was happy to hear somewhat of a different story. You know, Spencer got it under control. He threw himself into working out and just being focused on more positive stuff. And he can still have a drink sometimes when he wants to, which is great. So I guess he nipped it in the bud before it got completely out of control. So I uh, those are some of my favorite stories to hear, especially on this show, because it's my story. Yeah, it's it's interesting that um you you hear it's sort of um something you hear a lot is when people get into recovery is when they sort of find a, a religious belief or a spiritual belief and it seems like he sort of went in reverse with that, which is interesting. That you know they, they band and all his bandmates they all started out as a sort of a Christian band and they were sort of heavily indoctrinated into a belief system that he ultimately decided wasn't really for him. You know, it's just it's just interesting that I've, I've always I've heard the same a very similar sort of sobriety tale, but it's always or it's often goes along with someone finding some sort of religion, and that's when they sort of find their sobriety. But for him, it was sort of the opposite. That's interesting. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, yeah. So he got the he got the dose of the religious the religion early in life, and then got over it later, which I did too. I was never devout Catholic or anything like that, but. Once my parents stopped making me go to church, that was it. Basically, I was done. Yeah, I never, my, I never had, I never went. I've never actually been. Ever? No, like just you know, uh, on like Christmas Eve a couple of times, but like uh, I wasn't raised with it, so I don't. I've never really. I've been to weddings, you know, and I've been to uh, a couple, like a mass on Christmas Eve, that kind of thing, like a couple of times. But other than that, no, I've I've never really been. Uh, I don't recommend going. You're not missing anything. Yeah, it, get, it gets one star usually from most people. <laughs> but uh, no, great conversation with Spencer. That blew me away. You know, you don't even need to bring amps on tour anymore. Can you believe that? Yeah, um, the the I don't know anything about amps, but the guys in my band, obviously, they're su- they're super into all that shit. They're always you know buying gear and everything, and always up on all this stuff. And uh, Jeb was showing me these those little amps these like tiny little i guess the guys from caven all use those now too they're like these it's like smaller than a like an ipad it's this little thing that's like instead of bringing a head they just have this small like preamp that hooks into cabinets is that what you use yeah i got a the head that i bought is really small it's a yeah, dark tiny, glass right? micro tubes yeah it's really small yeah yeah i it's 
it's crazy to me. And it's and it's like a solid state thing, right? There's no tubes or anything in it. No. Yeah, that's and but it sounds, you know, it sounds like a like an orange head or something. Like they sound unbelievable. It's massive. I plugged it in to dial in the tone the other day, and I have it plugged into a big uh, Ampeg four by twelve cab. And it's massive. I have the I only have the volume turned up a tiny bit and it's like massive. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's unbelievable. So now yeah, so now there's a lot of giant heavy heads <laughs> kicking around that, that we don't really have use for. Yeah, I mean technology's come a long way. I'm glad because I hate carrying heavy shit around and I'm sure you do too as a drummer. Yeah, so you know, no, nothing's gotten small for me though. It's all just, you know, lugging around <laughs> big stupid caveman shit. They need to invent like a really good sounding tiny electronic kit and then you could play that i probably still i still wouldn't do it though there's like this whole thing with you know like i just like big drums yeah yeah that seems to be a thing with drummers and i get it yeah maybe we're compensating but no uh under oath great band i wasn't into them back in the day because i just wasn't listening to much heavier stuff in the mid 2000s so i discovered under oath later but i thought they you know before i heard them i had this impression that they were one of those like modern sounding really produced metalcore bands yeah i just assumed that's what they sound like but it's not and you know going through the discography it's really good i especially liked the 2022 record voyeurist they sound kind of like a heavier circus survive and i'm into that yeah, there are there. I I a similar thing. I sort of like heard of them early on and was like, oh, you know, oh, they're a Christian band, and then just didn't, you know, didn't pay attention, <laughs> um, which they aren't anymore. Obviously, after hearing that interview, um, yeah. There's I mean, there's so many bands. It's really hard to like keep up with, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm so happy that I have this show because it really keeps me in touch with everything, and I got to, I get to check out everything I passed over back in the day because. I was too thick-headed to listen to it, or I had some incorrect preconceived notion about the band, so I'm doing all my catch-up now. So there you go. Excellent, excellent conversation. Thank you, Spencer, for coming on the show. So Ryan, let's talk about our favorite subject, us. Yeah. Us. How are we doing? And I want to start with you, Ryan, because it's your first time here. And you know what? People hear enough from me. They know what's going on with me. They know what to expect. I have to talk to you. Where do you live, Ryan? Uh, I live in... I just moved, actually. I moved... Well, I moved in um, February back to Massachusetts. And uh, Where were you with before that? I was in New York. I was in Hudson Valley, New York. Um, like North. Oh, really? Why'd you move back? Uh, well, I grew up here and... Um, I don't know. It's one of those things where I never thought I would move back to the place I grew up, but just sort of I have two kids now and I sort of felt like that's what I should do. I don't really know why, but um decided to do that pre-pandemic and uh finally made good on our, our plans and uh we just moved here. Um and I've been like, you know, like we moved and then like there's always stuff that you couldn't fit in the truck or whatever. So you end up having to go back. So I had to go back like two times to go get extra stuff. So I just been driving back and forth between here and New York for like a week. So I'm, I've finally, I've, I've been, it feels like I've been on tour or something. So I'm finally done with that. That's good. That's good. You dig in the new spot? Oh, it's great. It's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I guess it's good to uh, probably be in your hometown, right? With kids you married to? Yeah, yeah. Married uh, two kids and it's, it's, it's weird. It's really surreal to be back here, you know, where <laughs> seeing like all your kids 
have their childhood in the same place where you did. You know, it's like you you're like time traveling every day with them. It's really bizarre. That would blow my mind. Like this past Christmas, I went and did a little driving tour of my old hometowns and all these memories came back. But if I was there with a wife and my own children watching them experience the same thing, my head would explode. It's really surreal. And you uh, yeah. like time sort of folds back in on itself. And it's like, it's it's crazy. You sort of see yourself like as as a kid and then you see yourself as your dad. And like, it's it's really, uh, it's, like I said, it's surreal. It's it's pretty mind blowing, um, and it's such a it's such a common normal thing that everybody does <laughs> all the time. Uh, but it just seems it just seems so. Uh, it it seems like really like a really heavy thing to be doing, even though it's so normal, you know. Yeah, it it is a normal thing, but it's a it is heavy as well. It's both. Yeah, so it's good. It's it's weird and it's great. And of course, we have. There Were Wires, the self-titled debut LP, coming back out on vinyl. We've got to be excited about that, right? Yeah, it's been really fun um, digging through all this stuff and um, having it, you know, sort of all this nostalgia that comes back with um, (laughs) reliving all this stuff and playing these songs again, you know. Um, I definitely thought that that, I, I haven't played in bands in like 20 years, you know, so I thought this part of my life was kind of over with, you know, I sort of resigned myself to the fact that like, well, I, I got to do that when I was young and that was really cool. And I'm very lucky I got to do it, but that's probably it. And then now here we are. It's really, it's really cool. I feel really lucky that I get to do this. So you didn't continue on with other bands after the initial end of There Were Wires? No, well, um, Thomas and Jeb and I from, from Wires, we did a band called Disappear for a few years. Um, it was just an instrumental band. And then I left that band and they continued on with another drummer um, for a few more years. And then that, they sort of hung that up too. Um, but I sort, of, I sort of thought I was done playing drums. I hadn't, I hadn't touched a drum kit in like 12 years or something before we got together for practice a little over a year ago. Uh, so that was really pretty nerve wracking. I just didn't know if I could do it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it just took a little bit of patience and, you know, some practice, but it, it's, it's slowly starting to come back. Wow. 12 years. Yeah. It's the, the first hour was the hardest. So it's got to feel good to be doing this again. Right. Cause I had, uh, Jamie and Jeb on the show and, you know, I think this was the first record that Iodine put out when they came back. There were wires, right? Yep. yep. I mean, it's got to be an incredible feeling to have Iodine back and to be doing this again, especially considering Somnambulus, the second LP, that came out right around the time when Iodine ended initially, correct? That's exactly, yes. It was, it was sort of all <laughs> crescendoed with, with our, uh, our, the release of our record. Uh, and I remember back then like how stressed out – I used to live with Casey – uh, and I remember how stressed he was uh, constantly about running a record label. And I think at the time, when you when you when you're you're younger, you don't really understand. Um, you know, you're in a band, and you don't you don't quite understand what goes into running a business like that, and how stressful it is. And I um, I ran a business similar to a record label for a long time, and I um, got to see how stressful it is to to manage money and paying for things and and rent and, and, and all, all that and taxes and you know it just it, the, the the unbelievable um toll that it takes on you personally and how you you know you're 
always at work, you're staying up late, the, the, all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that no one knows about and understands. It's, it's, it's so much work. I don't know how Casey does it, honestly. Because, I don't either. Like, yeah, this podcast is full time, but it's just me and I'm managing the guests and some communication and social media and I get overwhelmed sometimes. But the label is the label. There is a lot that goes into this and Casey is very, very involved with every piece of it. Yeah. And you're managing bands who are fucking idiots. And there's like, you know, <laughs> there's like five idiots in every band and like they all have opinions about shit. And then like, and then you've, you've got to manage all that. And there's all these bands and there's all the scheduling that have, has to go on and like, all, you know, this money that needs to get paid and things going on pressing plants. And then there's a, there's a problem and all of a sudden something costs all this money and then you've got a delay and then like the jackets for the record aren't ready. And then like there's a supply chain issue or whatever. And it's like, it's, there's so many moving parts and it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's easy to lose sight of that, you know, um, when you're not directly involved with it about how much stuff goes on behind the scenes and how much work it is to coordinate all of these moving pieces to get something to, you know, a finished product. When did you initially hear that iodine was coming back and that maybe you would get to put somnambulists back out? Uh, well, Casey, it all sort of happened at the same time. Oddly enough, like, like the, me and the guys in the band, everyone, we're still friends. We still, we maintain our friendship uh, for even though we didn't play music, you know, for ever since the band broke up, but we, uh, every couple of years we would talk about like, Oh, wouldn't it be funny if we did a reunion show or whatever, but we're, we're pretty self-deprecating about our band. And we always just sort of assume that, well, no one gives a shit, you know, there'd be like, there'd be us and maybe two people would show up, you know, like, why would anyone, why would anyone care about our stupid band, you know, um, from the early two thousands in Boston? Like we were never a big band, you know, we didn't like, we didn't do crazy tours or whatever. We always, it was something we just kind of did for fun. And we like, everyone else had other things they were pursuing at the time. So we were, we were never one of those like full-time touring bands. We had friends that were in bands like that in Boston and played with those bands, but we just never, we never took it that seriously or really expected anyone else to take us <laughs> very seriously. And so when we would just happen to be having one of those conversations about like, oh, wouldn't it be fun to, to, to do this again, to have a reunion show? But then we just always sort of assumed like no one fucking cares. So why would we do it? And like, maybe we would just do it for us, just get together in someone's basement or have a barbecue. And then coincidentally, around the time we were talking about that, Casey got in touch with us and Paul at Tor Johnson Records got in touch with us too. And they both sort of expressed interest in reissuing the the, some of our records on on vinyl and um and that's when casey talked to us about the possibility of him doing some stuff with iodine and of course at the time it was like you know he's maybe gonna do a record or two and then and, and it quickly <laughs> it quickly snowballed into <laughs> what it is now um which is it's awesome that all the stuff he's doing it's amazing i can't believe like the quicksand lp and all it's it's it, I, they do so much stuff um it's unbelievable yeah it's crazy so that's what i'm like i'm sort of like on a record label with quicksand sort of <laughs> which is oh, really I, like <laughs> dude, i've been telling everybody that yeah you it's, know it's a it's a technicality but i'm just telling everybody i'm label mates with quicksand i don't care yeah just say that and hope that they don't ask any follow-up questions and they never do they, yeah. they just look at me and say who are you and who is quicksand <laughs> yeah, yeah right <laughs> uh so yeah it was it, it all just kind of happened and, and um and then, you know, we're like, well, if we're going to re-release the record, we might as well do a reunion show, you know? And, and so, yeah, here we are. And we're going to, we're doing two shows, actually. 
when are those shows? Tell the people. We have to get out to see this. Oh, so um, the the first show is, well, they're both at the end of the month. Um, the first show is April 28th um, at the Sinclair in Cambridge. Uh, the headliners of that show are Have a Nice Life and then us and um, Sinaloa. And uh, that show sold out really quickly. Um, I think mostly because of Have a Nice Life, not because of us, but <laughs> we added a second show for anyone that wanted to come see us in Providence um, the next day. Uh, and we're playing that with Chain to the Bottom of the Ocean, um, Edict, and Iron Gag. Uh, and that's at uh, AS220 in Providence, which we used to play there a lot when we were you know, 20 years ago. Uh, so it'll be really cool to be back there again. So just like your mind is blown being back in your hometown with your kids, your mind, I'm sure, is going to be blown again playing shows with this band for the first time in, what, 20 years? Yeah, it's... It's yeah, it's really strange. It's it's really odd, and it's also kind of the strangest thing about it is that it's not strange, you know, because like we've we've all been friends for for so long that when we all got together to have practice and and we hadn't done it in so long, it wasn't like oh this is this is so strange. It was just it felt really normal. It's like yeah, here we are at band practice, you know, like as if it hadn't been, you know, it's like when you see an old friend that you've been friends with forever you don't have to like catch up and fill each other in on every little detail about your life. You just sort of like go back into like inside jokes and whatever, you know, it's like, exactly. It, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't weird. It was sort of like, yeah, here, here we all are together doing this. Um, but you know, when I think about it, it's, it's, I'm sure when we go to play, it'll be, hopefully we'll be able to, um, we won't disappoint people too much with our old bodies trying to play these fast punk songs. <laughs> No, I think the key is to be passionate and to throw yourself into it, but not to go too crazy, right? Because, you know, I read all these stories like uh, the, the poor guy from Thursday breaks his foot and Zach shatters his leg. You read these stories. Yeah. It's like, you, I guess you can't jump off of really high stuff anymore. Yeah, that's fucking me for sure. Like I even even when I was like 20 years old, I would have to not you get so amped up before you play and you're like your adrenaline goes crazy and you have to not just completely burn yourself out like 30 seconds into your first song. You know, you're so, I mean, I, I don't, I assume that's everybody, but, um, but I will, I always felt like that. I would just get so like be shaking with adrenaline just when you're about to play. And then you, uh, it's really hard not to just completely gas yourself out. Yeah. When I was young, my mindset was the crazier we go, the better it will be. Sure. But I, I, I really just put too much focus on myself because, you know, cause I was even doing that in bands that weren't heavy. Like <laughs> yeah. I, I was just going too nuts and jumping around. And, and so I'm committed to not doing that this time. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm going to be into it, but I'm not going to make a spectacle of myself. Yeah. I have to like, I have to really make a, a concerted effort not to not to just lose my composure because I get so I just get so excited um, that I have to like really try to slow my slow my body down and and breathe and not and not just like throw everything and and make a mess. And how could you not playing these songs? Here, I I want to play something for the people real quick. When my co-host Tommy was on the show, we used to call this the riff, and uh, we would get really into it. Hold on, this is you, Ryan. This is me. Okay. I would go crazy playing that. Oh, yeah? That's so good. Oh, thank you. I, I, yeah, I still, I, I still even all this, 
I still can't like fathom that anyone gives a shit about <laughs> about about our band. You know, it's still so so strange to me. Well, you have a sold out show. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's a great sign. Uh, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> yeah, I just I've I've always had the mindset where like I don't and I don't want this to be taken the wrong way, but like I've we always. I don't want to speak for anyone else in the band, but I think this is kind of like how we always looked at it. It's like, we, we, we did it for us and we didn't, it's, it's, it's great that people like it. And uh, you know, the people that do, and I think it was a, it's a small amount of people that care a lot about our band, which I will take over like a large amount of people, you know, half giving a shit any day. We, we always had like a very small, but very loyal group of fans that would show up and there's looking at the photos of of those old shows uh even all these years later i see the same like there's the same fucking kid at every (laughs) show like there he is and there's the same girl like and there's this other same dude like every they were there at every show and and they were right there with us on the floor like losing their fucking shit um and that's i i think at the time i I don't know why i didn't I definitely didn't appreciate that as much as I should have uh, at the time. I think it's just sort of like the, I don't know, just part of part of being young. And um, yeah, you just don't when you're young. Yeah, you just can't. You know, that's like that's like what like the you know what do they say like youth is wasted on the young. Like I, I just, exactly. I didn't. I didn't. I, I see it now. I see a video now of us playing and these kids going fucking bananas. And I remember like sometimes there'd be people like falling on my drums and stuff and being like annoyed, like, Oh man, this kid knocked my drums over for the third time in this set. And I see it now and I'm like, how fucking dare you be annoyed? Like at like this, these kids going absolutely insane for, you know, these shitty songs that you wrote in a basement. Um, (laughs) It's like, it's, it's really, I feel very, very fortunate that, that I was able to do that. uh, And that, and also I'm, you know, like, and I'm also proud of that we did that, that that's what I did with my early 20s. You know, I could have been doing a lot of other stuff. And I decided to, you know, sit in a van and sit in a practice space and and be hauling gear in February in Boston. And like, all the all the shit that goes along with it, all the all the non glorious parts that go along with it. Um, And then all these years later, you get to look back and be like, wow, this is what an amazing thing that I got to be a part of. And not a lot of people get to do something like that. And now not only do you get to look back on it fondly, you get to do it again. Yeah, I get, I'll try to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to try. <laughs> I, uh, I, I also am re-entering the music world. I, uh, I am... I heard about that. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. I am double label mates with you now, Ryan, the podcast and the Darling Fire and like you mentioned, you know, it, it, it was anxiety inducing because I hadn't been in a band situation like this in a while. Well, that's not exactly true. I put out a record in 2017 with a band. I've been working on a band since right before the pandemic. But, you know, I had to like sit and learn the set and meet up with the band and play the set. And it was it was pretty scary, but I got it done. And we're playing some shows this weekend. And that's going to be pretty scary, but I know I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm going to get it done. How long has it been since you've played a show? It has been seven years. So I, my, my, my suspicion of what I, what I think will happen with me too, is that like the first, 
it's going to be really crazy and uh, for the first five minutes and then you'll totally just it'll just be like it like you you know like it was last week you know it'll just be totally normal again that's exactly it because like you were mentioning it didn't feel weird like i was hauling my stuff into the practice space setting it up talking to the band playing the songs and you know i was really stiff for the first couple songs maybe the first set but we played the set like seven times and by the end it just felt like old times again yeah it's muscle memory it all just comes back yeah so let me plug my shows too. Hold on a second. Everybody, you have to come out for this. Okay, here we go. So if anyone lives in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we are playing Launch Music Conference and Festival in Lancaster, PA on Saturday, April 15th. And then we're playing in Manassas, Virginia at Salisbury Venue on April 16th. That's Sunday. So two shows. Come check it out if you live anywhere near either of those places. So look at us, Ryan. We're back. We're doing it. We're living the dream. Look at us. They better watch out. We're taking over iodine. We are taking over iodine, and then we are taking over the world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it. That's it. We're out of time. But look, there's a lot of exciting stuff coming up. Ryan, it was great to meet you and have you on the show, and I hope... uh, we cross paths at some point, you know, like uh, you're not in New York anymore, but now we're both in active bands again. You never know. There might be some show or something that happens. So I hopefully uh, I get to meet you in person at some point. Yeah, well, well, I'll probably see you when we're like we're hanging out with Quicksand at our next like, you know, elbow rubbing event for, for our record label. Oh, yeah. There'll be like some big event at, at some rooftop bar, you know, all of us iodine bands hobnobbing. And that that's when it's going to happen. Well, thanks so much for having me, man. It was, uh, you know, uh, a privilege. And um, uh, I, I, I listened to the show and um, it's really cool to, to finally get to be on it with you. And uh, uh, thank you. Of course. So you actually listened to the show. I, yes, I haven't heard every episode, but I ha- I do I do listen to the show. I just listened to the one you did with Kurt uh, last week. Oh yeah, that's blowing up the internet. I'm very happy about that right now. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. Big time. I was very happy that we landed that one. But you know what, Ryan? I'm very happy to have you here right now as well. Oh well, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> well, that's it. We're out of time, and uh, we are going to end the show with "Lukewarm Happy" by There Were Wires. I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening and until next time. Five, two, three, four. Yeah, 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 yeah.